Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats in an ongoing cyber war. It's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cybersecurity America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Joshua Nicholson. Now don't forget to hit like, subscribe, comment, share, and turn on those notifications so you don't miss an exciting episode. Thank you, Josh. Two big reports that came across the CTI desk here at Deep Seas, both of which actually have to do with operational technology and ICS SCADA systems. The first one was a piece of malware that was discovered that's actually been around for years and that's being dubbed as Cosmic Energy by Mandiant. And this is a Russian-based malware, or at least believed to be of Russian origin. This malware follows the same kind of principles that we've seen with Indestroyer and Indestroyer 2. So this is more Russian targeting of operational technology systems, especially following a lot of the activity that we saw in Russia and Ukraine, as well as other industrial systems that have been targeted by the Russian nation state. Now, specifically, what was interesting about these the reporting that's coming out here is how long this implant had actually just been sitting out in the open and was basically publicly known, just never really tied to operational technology activity. Now, there was a lot of information that was released with regards to TTPs and indicators of compromise that were put out on this, but it does show uh, a nation-state focus on operational technology and industrial technology, both for the ability to do disruptive attacks in the incident of like warfare or some sort of kinetic activity, as well as conducting espionage just to be able to gather either intellectual property or, or just have an implant that's sitting there and being able to report back to be able able to either affect certain economic decisions, uh, as well as like the overcharging of a gas pipeline, which we reported, I believe, three weeks ago with regards to some of the intel leaks that came out showing that Russia was actually able to manipulate a gas pipeline within Canada. And their intent at that time was basically just to create a profit issue uh, with that gas company. But their ability to actually leverage different aspects of that pipeline could have resulted in a destructive attack if Russia deemed to do though they were using it for purely economic purposes, in other words, to financially disrupt a specific gas company, likely one that was providing natural gas energy to other countries uh, with regards to economic sanctions against Russia. But an additional implant that we saw that's also following this comes from, it actually comes from China itself, and this was Volt Typhoon. And what Volt Typhoon is, is another operational technology implant that's used primarily for espionage. And of course, China's also within a world where there's a lot of sanctions against Russia and China's unaware of its position that they're going to take when it comes to some of the international pressure that's being applied. Natural the energy, natural gas, oil, oil and gas are all parts of these diplomatic and political pressures that are going to be 
going into the new world with a lot of the sanctioning that's occurring, as well as potential sanctions that could happen depending on the types of position that China decides to take in regards to Taiwan. So this could be uh, their method of preparing for that type of activity and figuring out a way that they would be able to either disrupt operations within the West, but it wasn't the only thing that we saw with Volt Typhoon. That wasn't just targeting operational technology. This particular Chinese actor also targeted the defense industry, academia, and other places where we know China is particularly interested when they look at things like intellectual property theft. We did see a renewal of China's five-year plan, and Xi Jinping is specifically wanting to become a global leader in a lot of different industries to include energy, as well as pharmaceuticals and medical science and technology. So there's a lot of indicators that suggest that China's espionage activity is going to only increase in the guise of being able to see what is going on in larger economies within the West, ways that they can compete, and also ways that they can conduct theft of intellectual property to then recreate products that are doing exceedingly well in the West and attempt to try to corner markets with the way that they're able to economically manipulate and sell a lot of their products, sometimes even at a loss if it feeds their governmental economic ideas and landscapes for the coming years. This is a way that China is going to attempt to take the influence of the West away, uh, try to become a global leader so they can also become a global policymaker and pressure other countries into not standing against them for the potential of what could happen to some of their critical industries if China is so embedded as we see in a lot of different countries being embedded in infrastructure and technology dependence. So those were two large reports that we looked at, both of which kind of follow a very similar theme of nation states preparing themselves in operational technology as well as critical infrastructure and using that as a way within cyberspace to leverage political thinking as well as position themselves into a position that when they move on something kinetically, whether it be what's going on between Russia and Ukraine or a potential military activity that could occur against Taiwan. This is cyberspace has become a weapon as much as anything else in diplomacy, in politics, as well as in that sort of kinetic warfare activity. But that is it for my CTI update this week. Back to you, Josh. Welcome to Cybersecurity America. Thank you for the update, Aaron. Appreciate that. On today's episode, we have a great episode today. We have one of the top cybersecurity influencers. It's Chloe Mastagi. Mas- I'm sorry about that. Excellent. She's an accomplished security executive. She's currently the CEO and founder of Global Secure Partners. She's known for advising and developing solutions that have improved security teams and the industry. She's a sought-after public speaker and trusted source for national and, sec- and sector reporters. Her work has been featured in numerous outlets, and she's been recognized as a power player in cybersecurity by Business Insider and SC Magazine. Chloe is also a de- is also dedicated to various charitable causes, demonstrating her commitment to driving positive change. Welcome to the show, Chloe. It's nice to meet you. Thanks for having me on here. I'm excited for this. That's great. And one of the things I thought was so exciting about getting to meet you and understand your background is that you've been in this field for a while. You've been in cybersecurity for a while, and you've gotten to show a lot of that through your podcasts and through your channel and so forth. 
But I'm just curious, you know, some of the questions I have, I had a whole list here, is one one of the topics we wanted to talk about is burnout and fatigue okay. in the cybersecurity world. I'm day in, day out. I'm an incident commander one minute. And I'm running a team in another, and we have a situation going on strategically at the same time. So how does cybersecurity professionals, how have you helped to manage the stress and the day-to-day activity from that? But I know that's a, an area that you're are pretty well-versed in, but what are your thoughts? Honestly, we could do a whole podcast on just that question alone, Joshua. I'm sure. But I think the thing that a lot of people need to be aware of, it starts with ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Usually when we get to that burnout point, we sometimes don't know that we are. I think one of the things that is really noticeable is that change of actions, change of behavior. Sometimes our closest friends or colleagues will be able to pick up like, hey, a little bit more cynical today than usual, or it'll be like, oh, it used to take you like 10 minutes to send this email. Now it takes you an hour, maybe all day to send this email. And at the end of the day, burnout starts with you. And I think the thing that we don't talk about enough is that usually burnout is usually contributed by our employer. The majority of cases of burnout is because of our employer. And the unfortunate bit is when you work in security, security is still kind of like this pushing over a cliff situation, not a cliff, I would say, but over a hill more like where we need other executives to be aligned with security. And because security is like the back of the mind of everything when it comes to business, security is usually not really taken care of properly. And so what ends up happening is that there's all these little holes that happens because they're not being looked at. They're not being cared for. And when we have really bad leadership, that's when we start seeing problems. I think the one thing that we don't talk enough is why burnout occurs so often. And a lot of times people believe it's the amount of work or it's the number of hours. And yes, burnout can occur when we don't balance our work and our personal life. But research has shown over and over again that it's brought to you by poor leadership. So when we get these like incredibly highly technical folks and we're like, we're going to promote you to head and lead people, they may not be the best fit for it because they're not getting supported to train to become leaders. So what ends up happening is that you may be feeling a little insecure. You're also worried. You feel like the weight of the world's on your shoulders. So you want to make sure that everything is being done on time properly. And this is when we get micromanaging happening. And that's when we start feeling our colleagues feeling a lot more burned out. That's interesting. Yeah, I would have first thought it was more from just the workload, the challenge that's going on. Maybe there's too much business that's coming in. We need to slow down. Or in many ways, you. Yeah, I guess you're right. If you're working with a good leader and you see the vision and you understand you're part of the team, there is a level that you can just relax, that you don't have to be in the know of everything. You trust the people that you work with. And so it's more of a challenging event rather than a burning out environment. Think about our high achievers on our teams, the people that can like do everyone's job basically in that seat, they get tasked so often. So they're the first ones to get burned out. And when you lose your star player on your team, now the whole team isn't moving forward because they were fully relying on that one person. So it's just this continual burnout because we go through these spurts And then we just have no energy whatsoever and we need to recharge our batteries. But then people always think, well, take some time, go for a vacation. 
And that's a, that is a temporary fix. That's a bandaid because in reality, we have burnout because we need to make a life change. And that's the thing that we may feel uncomfortable in exploring. It's interesting. I always think I need a vacation because I need a time where nothing is making a binging sound or an email coming in, a Slack message, whatever it is. I need things to stop grabbing my attention just to be able to concentrate on being in the present. And I think that's what some of us try to use vacations for. But I guess there's other ways to do that where you don't have to go off. And I'm sure there's other tools for that. And I think that's a key point because... Somebody may think that, hey, I'm feeling burnt out at this moment, or I'm feeling like this at this moment, and make a very rash decision and change companies, change jobs, go somewhere else. And it wasn't what it was promised. I can't tell you how many people have seen that. It was like, I went over to this big company or over here, and man, it was not what I anticipated. It was not what I interviewed. The interview was perfect. Why can't the job (laughs) like the interview? Yeah, I've experienced that myself too, as well. I also see there's like a generational thing too, is that the newer generation, especially the millennials, there does seem to be a quicker desire for them to have accolades and to get promoted faster up the chain than like my generation, my generation X. So my generation was used to, I go work at a company. I know it's about two years. I have to prove myself before I get a raise or promotion. I just know it's about two years of me proving I, I deserve the job in the first place. And then some of these younger millennials that you manage, you'll notice that No, they're more of the Facebook. They need to update their profile. They're moving up the ladder. They need some accolade. They need something from it. And they just seem to have a different desire when you do these one-on-ones and these reviews. It's not as much where you would see some generations more about pay and it's more about work and so forth. They were actually from uh, being shown to move up the ladder to achievement was a key to it. And I think, is it possible too, is that the more achievement that you can have in that position would lower the burnout rate the same way as you had a good leader. If you had, if you were recognized for your achievements or you were put into a place to, to get achievements, does that help reduce burnout? I don't think so. If we ever think about, okay, so why did we want to leave that job? Why do we dread going to the office? It's usually if we have a good boss, like a boss where we can talk about things and we support one another, we have this sense of trust and we have a bond, I'm going to feel like it could be the most toxic work environment in the entire company, but I have a boss who is protecting me and is protecting its team. I find that's somewhere I would want to stay because that boss has created an inclusive environment. I think the problem is that when we don't have that, when we have a boss who pushes us in front of a bus or takes says that the work that you know you did was theirs, I think that's when we're starting to play more of a political game situation. And that can be incredibly tiring. Awesome. It also can be incredibly toxic where you have employees that leave and then they might seek therapy. Yeah. No, I think I would love to know the statistics that how many therapists say my boss was this in therapy (laughs) sessions. If you can pull that metadata out and understand how many people had boss issues, just look at back at my time. You would think being in the Marine Corps that my worst bosses would be some Marine sergeant. And actually, it was the opposite. They were mentoring. They were guiding. When A lot of people have fathers. I had multiple fathers. I was 18 years old when I went to the Marine Corps. So I got exposed to these older men that were father figures. And, and 
they had a leadership model in the Marine Corps they taught was a servant leadership. My job is to serve my people and the, my team. It's not the opposite. I am not the executive on the Hill and their job is somehow to serve me. It's service leadership. And you go into combat, you should be the first in line, not in the back and the rear. You should be leading from the front. And they had these two principles was mission accomplishment and troop welfare. The two principles were always about taking care of your people. That as well is one, one of the things I thought was interesting is that you would go to a chow hall or you would go in the field and you're eating food and the senior enlisted in the officer step back and let all the junior people eat before anything. They'll starve before a junior person starves. And that enforced that that team mentality. And so I think when you have team members that know that their manager, their executive, depends on what level we're talking about, but at least their direct manager and at least the executive above them has their best interest in heart and is not going to allow something nefarious to happen or something bad to happen. And when he speaks to them, I run into these two. I've had to do layoffs before. I've had to do a lot of things that executives just have to do because of that position. But to be able to do that kind of stuff with dignity, with do it with pride and compassion and realize what people are going through. And I think that's a huge key. It's not about the money you make as much. It's about the people you deal with and the way you handle them. And I think it's just the way you respect people and hear their point of views and so forth. I think that can reduce kind of the burnout. Is that kind of what your thought is? Yeah. Honestly, at the end of the day, I think the best managers are the ones that know that they're the coach of the team. They are the mentor of the team. They're not the ones that are like, I'm in it for my own pride. It's the ones that are in it to know that their job is to make sure that everything is running and the people that are running it feel supported and they can see a future staying there. And they feel heard. I think that's like the most important thing is we all want to feel heard and respected and wanted. And I think that when we have teams that do that and we have incredible bosses that do that, why would we want to leave? Of course, pay might be one of those options. Let's be honest. We do like our money, but but a good work environment. Yeah, but a great work environment. I have definitely taken jobs where I knew that this was going to be a better work environment and it took a huge pay cut. But at the end of the day, I knew that I'd rather go home feeling better than go home and be like, all right, let's go to a happy hour place. Yeah. No, that makes a whole lot of sense. I think I learned a lot of that stuff in a lot of the books I had to go through in consulting. And even the Marine Corps had this commandant's reading list. Stuff like Good to Great from Jim Collins or Raving Fans from Kim Blanchard, Dale Carnegie's. Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I think it was written in the 1920s. I think they rewrote it for a current edition. But it's just a key point to, like you were talking about, to be heard. And that's what people want. They want that connection. They want you to know that their concerns have been heard. And so I think a lot of the times it's hard when you're on the senior management team and there's things you just can't tell your people. This is going to be those things you just can't tell them. But the big things that will imp- impact them, they know that you're A, looking out for them, but B, you're also pushing down as much information as possible. Whenever you get it, whenever the salary increases come, believe me, I'm going to let you guys know I'm not holding on to it any longer. That stuff. And I think also when you take, if you had to do a performance improvement plan on someone, if you had to pip someone and you had to put them on a plan, that you did it in an honorable way. It was for a real reason. You had it well documented what the expectations were. You did it fairly. And I think that's the key word to a lot of people is fairly. If you have a coworker that's always late, always screwing up, is always in trouble, yet 
I get written up for the first time anything happens to me. That sense of injustice, and that's just an example of something, in the workplace causes toxicity, I think, causes animosity and causes burnout rates, wouldn't you think? Yeah, especially if you're someone who's underrepresented on your team, you're probably going to be the first one to be let go if you make a little mistake. So whenever you hear, oh, no, it's definitely, no, that's actually proven. So like, for example, there's a reason why people of color and women are going to take on more tasks that are beyond their job because they know if they don't do it and they're asked to do something, they don't do it, they're on a list. And see, this is the thing. You don't see too many people that are underrepresented go on performance plans. What ends up happening is they get fired or they get laid off. And so that that's the thing I've noticed in this industry is that when you don't have representation on your team nor leadership, and knowing that there is possible some unconscious biases on the team, I think that also plays a role on it too. That's interesting. I've never thought of that. I majority of my leadership team is female. And but it's mostly a customer facing service. And I think more females are attracted to those. So they apply to those jobs a lot more. But it's interesting that that you say that. I didn't know that perspective. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought that would have been a perspective because I've seen females get pipped before. I see males get pipped. I get and depending on the severity. I see them get fired for real reasons. Like most of the real reason would be that no matter what you do in that PIP, that person's not going to turn around and it's going to be disastrous because they've already mm-hmm. shown that they don't take feedback. So if that's the case, yeah. and or if it's in some cases where you see it's just not a fit, like they're a salesman and they're trying to sell and they just cannot sell this stuff. It's obvious this is outside their wheelhouse. What do I do? Do I really pip them and wait a whole nother quarter for that? Or is it just obvious you you probably misrepresented yourself during the interviewing process? Yeah, it, you have to look at as a leader of that person on that team, what did you provide for them to be successful? Did right. you give them training? If they did the training and sometimes we have to go through training again to get reinforced at different times, then it's okay. But if they go through training numerous times and it's not helping their performance at all, it might be more of a conversation of, hey, I know you're a hard worker. I know you're trying really hard. Have you thought about maybe doing a different department or different roles? I think opening the door where there's opportunity still, because it's so hard to find another person to bring into a company and then have to learn everything all over again. So if we already have someone who's gone through that, but maybe they would be better in a different department or a different role, let them explore that and just listen to them and see how they approach it. I think the thing is when we turn around, hey, did you ever think of being an HR? Or like, I've heard some other things like that. But the thing is, at the end of the day, let them tell you what else they've been thinking of, because they probably have been thinking about it too. Because honestly, at the end of the day, they're probably thinking that they're a lot worse in many ways than, you know, what you may think. Yeah. And I think one of the problems I run into is that before when I was with a different company, I had 76 people around the world that I had to manage and they each had their own team meetings and so forth. We had all hands. It was really hard to connect as the company continues to scale. And so you can see where, so you would set up one, when it originally happens, you set up more one-on-ones, right? And you want to communicate more. And so you're always struggling to make sure everybody knows what's going on. They all feel connected. At the same time, you're not wasting their time. And it's in distributed because you're in five different countries. And so you have to break it up into these different. It gets really challenging 
to maintain the culture. One of the ways I did it, I was like co-fence, is we had these team building events where we went to, one was a brewery trip. We went on a van and we went on a brewery trip within Seattle for the Seattle team. That was great. We let them pick that out. I just came with the corporate court. And then having those events where we actually get to know each other as people and realize that we're just people. You might be a vice president, but it don't matter. You do put your pants on. Everybody else does. And so I think just connecting as a people is really important and something I tried to foster. The problem is that when you're in certain companies, the chief financial officers don't always understand, hey, you need tens of thousands of dollars to fly people to this place to do this. They see it as a boondoggle in, or can. But I think if positioned right, where my my biggest thing is as a company where you're going out for the new year, you can't run a football play without a huddle. So why wouldn't we get people together? And when I get them together in person, we do these team building events in person, the connection is there for a while. Yeah, I remember, yeah, I remember when we did shot those arrows and we did this and we did that. That connects these people and they're willing to work harder for each other because of the relationship they built during the team building. Not because somebody said, hey, you're assigned to this one and I want you to work with them. It was because of the bond they developed when they first got to know each other. And I know a lot about that. That's the military way of training a highly performing team and so forth. So I believe in those team building events as well as the, I like to end a lot of the one-on-ones I do with my team and just say, do you have everything you need to enable your success? If there's anything you don't need, I don't want to hear in six months or a year, you need more training, you need this. Really would like to get that out now. So if you can tell me, is there anything you're missing from your success? And I do believe the management training, some of the most valuable ones, I went to Wharton School of Business, the executive management training course for global strategic leadership. So it's this expensive $15,000 training course, but the board at the time of the company I was in demanded that the senior management team go to these advanced courses. So we had to go to them. One thing, it was on emojis and facial expressions of foreigners. So you actually had to see the foreign faces. They would So they would give you a test before you get to this class. Never had a test before I went to a class, but it was so you would give you an Asian face, it would give you Chinese and Korean and just all these different nationalities and these races. And it would ask you to determine if that's a happy face or if a smiley face and so forth. And it's amazing how difficult that can be based on how you grew up. Like it's in the eyes. It's always in the eyes. That's the trick. And that, and that proves that because they had one with the emojis and they said, look, executives, when you're dealing internationally like you all are, Try not to send emojis to people in other countries because it's interpreted different. You're going to have a hard time getting English right. But you start throwing emojis in here and it's going to it's going to be chaos. And they gave an example. They had um, this one that was a Japanese emoji and it had the eyes were squiggly and the mouth was straight. And it says, what does that mean? What What is the emotion? Is that drunk? Is that let's go get drunk? That's what it looked like. It, it looked like let's go get blasted. And come to find out, no, that's happy because they express happy in their eyes and not in their mouth. So you would never see a smiley face to indicate happy. They would just indicate it in their eyes. Never would have known that was a whole different cultural distinction that was interesting, as well as words overseas. It was funny. I was in Saudi Arabia and this one guy says, excuse me, sir, but can we speak intimate for a moment? I was like, hold on, intimate. What do you mean intimate? He says, yes, over here where no one else can hear. Oh, in private? I'll go speak to you in private, but I'm not speaking intimate. And he was like, what is context? Nothing. Don't worry about it. I mean, what am I supposed to tell him? I think you're coming on to me. And that's just because he uses a different world of intimate. None of us, we have a whole different context for that, right? And so internationally, I think it's hard to, how do you avoid burnout with 
different cultures too. Some things are, I, I noticed like in the Middle East and in Asia, when I would travel there, they were really impressed when a vice president level person came to see him. Like they told their whole family about it. It was like a, a big event that a VP from America was coming to see them. Once we figured that out, we started sending Americans from VPs over there frequently because we saw that was like the secret sauce to the door of business opening up. But it was really strange to understand those cultural things. And what does it take for them not to experience burnout? I guess that question to you, how do you deal with staying sane in different cultures internationally? I think the thing is that, like you said earlier, terminology can be different in different places. So whenever I talk about burnout or ask people they're burned out, I don't use the term burnout. Instead, I ask them about symptoms. So I'll be like, do you feel like you haven't slept for days? Or no matter how much sleep you get, it's just not enough. Yeah. I always, I think those are, you can ask the symptoms, but everyone has a different idea about a word and the definition. We all have our own definitions for different words. That's why we have so many miscommunications, I think, sometimes. But at the end of the day, it's just asking about symptoms and feelings. And that's really it at the end of the day. Yeah, you'll notice that too. The communications we choose. If I text something to someone that knows me, it's real real easy to be understood. But as someone you don't, what does that mean? Why do they say it that way? And then in an email, there's more characters. So you can see there's a little bit more precision in the message that comes in. There's spell check and all that kind of stuff. All the way up to the body language that somebody uses on a presentation. If I'm presenting some big project and they're down looking at their phone or whatever, that all those little contextual things mean something different. And it's really hard when you go from the lowest form of technology all the way up to face-to-face meeting with people. Right? A lot of it also has to do with projections too, right? So if we are texting someone and we have a little smiley face emoji, right? Someone's going to project what they think that message could be about. Is this person flirting with me? Or is this person actually happy? Or are they micromanaging me and throwing a smile my way? to just give it to me a little. That's the thing. You never know unless you ask, but people will jump to conclusions and they'll usually go running with them until it's proven wrong. But once again, you have to ask the question. How do you flesh out what you really mean without insulting the person? I think there's ways, questions you can ask. You said this, is that really what you meant? Or Yeah, you you can always do that. Or you can, I think also, the more we get to know each other, Mm -hmm. we tend to have a better idea about someone. We know our closest friends. If they send us a smiley face, we know what it actually means from them. But if we don't know someone, we're just guessing. And the thing is, at the end of the day is don't take it personal and just keep going with it and get to know the person over time. But you can always ask them when you see them like, hey, you sent me this smiley face and this message. Yeah. Do you send a lot of smiley faces and messages? Because I'm still learning how to use it properly. Like you can always frame it as you're trying to learn about yourself through their their actions. Because if you do that, they don't feel like you're coming after them. You're being aggressive. Instead, you're opening a conversation about now the usage of smiley faces. Get their opinion. There you go. You yeah. can make a statement by asking questions. I think it's important, this whole spin out where we spun out of Booz Allen Hamilton, we went to deep seas. One of the things that was valuable was my leadership, like my chief operating officer, Wade Alt, my directs that, or my peers, VPs that I work with. I've worked with them several years now, and there's a trust factor. I know that if one swerves into my lane and is doing something in an account or something that I'm responsible for, I know it's inadvertent. I know it's not on purpose. 
There's no ill will towards it. Hey, what's going on? It's a level of trust that we have where we don't need to grab things for recognition or look to throw someone under the bus. A lot of times we'll look to shield somebody from it, but it's just a trust factor where even with these big meetings or even with leadership, I may not know that what the answer is. Like uh, he's obviously the chief operating officer. He's got other things that he's responsible for. But if it's relevant to us and it's important to us, I've seen him fight for us and I've seen him do that kind of stuff. So to me, there's a trust factor that I know he's in that position and not somebody else. Because those are the things that you can't control. You can't control your boss above you and some decision they make to lay you off or to change in some direction and so forth. But I think it's always important where, yeah, I may feel burnt out and stressed out, but I support the mission. I love the people I work with. I love the leadership that I have. So it makes it manageable. And I guess if you, I don't know if you notice this, but in technology, I'm pretty sure you do. You have two tracks. You have a leadership track where they got a little bit of tech experience. They might've gotten an associate's degree in something or whatever, enough to be dangerous and put on a resume. Then you got the hardcore IT guys. That's the route I came up. And then there comes the management or tactical technical track. And I think too many companies assume that these technical people should want to be the next manager and want and to they be don't. the next president and wants to be the next <laughs> CEO of the company. And they absolutely do not. They don't want to be in meetings with front of customers. And I think that technical track needs to continue the same way in the military. You have an enlisted track and you have an officer track, right? And they complement each other. And that's how you get things done. And I think in the same way, you have to split those up. So your information security engineer three, the next hop from him is not information security manager, right? Because he doesn't want to be a manager. He doesn't want to run people and that kind of stuff. And then I think you stress people out when they think of, oh, here, I need to get in this role that I have no experience in, I have no training in, and somehow I'm supposed to figure it out. I don't know about this management thing. And they probably have the skills. They're very much qualified for it. They've just never been mentored past something like that. And I think it it panics them. But having, I think that separate track would give some relieving. What are your thoughts on that? Not everyone wants to be a leader or a manager of people. Managing people, it's a skill. It's an art. And the more, even if you're technical and now you're going a leadership route, you're going to lose that technical part of you. It's just going to happen. But I think the thing is having making sure that people that have been on the security team for a long times, you know, that person who is really good at their job should still be in the room with the leaders too, especially when we're thinking about strategies, thinking about ways of improving. I think having them in the room is important. You don't have to be managing people to have someone to be strategic in a room with you when making plans. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And so what are some of the places, environments that you've seen and just recently with some of these new trends? I'm getting a lot of questions about chat GPT. And then <laughs> there's burnout from that of going, am I going to lose my job because some computer's taking over? Everyone's saying this is the dawn of something new, like when the ape dis- discussed right. the tool or something. And you have a lot of people, especially in like marketing and HR, could just see their jobs being taken away. So how do you deal with these existential type things like this. It's really big. It's nothing culturally I can do about AI. Yeah. I think the one thing we have to always come to understand and is an unpleasant thing to come to terms with is that we can't predict the world. There's going to be so many people out there that are going to predict something because even a prediction allows us to feel a sense of calmness. But the reality, that's not how the world works. The world is unpredictable. And we learned this from the pandemic. 
you can't predict things. You don't know what's going to end up happening. When we change, all of us are going to feel at edge. We're all going to be like, what does this mean for me? How's this going to impact me? And that's understandable fear. And so I think the thing to always recognize is that ChatGPT isn't an assistant. It's an assistant. It will help you craft what you need to craft for your role. It will be there to improve what you've already crafted. But once again, you have to check it. You have to overanalyze it. You're going to have to go through the process of whether or not this is what delivers is what you need. So I think ChatGPT can be really good in a sense where it's your assistant and it helps you communicate better, more effectively. I think we can always improve on our communication, especially when it comes to Ren. And I think ChatGPT does that. I don't, I hope it doesn't replace jobs in the end. I think the thing that what we're seeing right now is, yeah, content marketing might be one of those things. But at the end of the day, ChatGPT can't know how people feel when it comes to going to a conference. Those conversations we have in the alleyway or in by alleyway, in the lobby way, lobby cons are a very real thing. Those conversations aren't what ChatGPT is having with itself. So I think it's, we'll find out with time, but at this, see it as an assistant and learn from it, use it. And then if you know how to use it well, that always means you still have a role ahead of you, no matter what. No, I agree. I use it to help put the chat, the show descriptions together and some of the transcripting work that would take forever. So I had my marketing team say, hey, a deep seas who was saying that it's taking forever to listen to your podcast and then write down notes. And I, it's technical, so I really don't understand what you're saying. And I've got to write it down and those acronyms. And this is just taking a lot of time. They were going to hire an outside writer. And I think this is where I had showed that I can take the transcript out of use a software called Descript take the software transcript out from there. And I was actually imported to chat GPT. I told it to write me blogs, three on word blogs based on my show. And so boom, it spit it out, maybe two, three words that had to be changed. Now to me, yes, somebody's didn't get that work that I would have hired someone for. However, it was pretty commoditized and pretty redundant language anyway that was able to, I was able to generate much more effectively. So like the transcribing, do we really need people to sit down and write every word with paper? I think if you go back to the industrial revolution where you had machines, the cotton gin was putting people out of business and printing press put people scribes out of business. So all the machines and revolution that goes fast, I think one needs to be flexible to know that digital revolution is occurring whether it's Bitcoin or it's quantum computing or it's new understanding of black holes, whatever it is, you to prepare yourself from a career perspective for a backup. And in order to be able to train you, where are new jobs going? I think there's some people that wait to the last minute to their careers in decline because the industry is in decline. I know a friend of mine who had, had a degree in sound engineering. He created all the speakers for the sound systems and Sony and Bose and all that stuff. And then probably eight to 10 years ago, they started outsourcing all that to Asia. And they wrote all the engineers out of Asia too. And so it was almost overnight. He lost his job or you have to move to Asia. It was really that bad. They do not do that kind of business in the United States anymore. So what do you do? He was pretty stubborn and just said, I'm just going to keep finding jobs. This is what I do. And struggled financially for a decade easily. 
but didn't see the writing to say, okay, the industry has changed, technology has changed. I need to adapt. I need to change to what I'm going to be. Maybe I go cybersecurity, maybe I go development, maybe I do something else. But it was like, when do you think you're holding on? Like you're not quitting on your dream. Your dream is to be this. And you think that's your dream, but it's really holding on to a dead career. And you didn't see that the whole world took a right turn on you and you're missing out. How do you gauge one gauge that? I think it it might be one of those things where it's a generational situation. And the reason for that is I think that back in the day, you would go and do a job for 15 years of your life or 20 years of your life. And you just, that's the only thing that you ever do is just do that one job for the rest of your life. And you only have maybe two jobs in your entire existence. The reality is with technology and with, I guess, how change happens and movements happen in society is sometimes we have to learn other skills. I think one things that, you know, we have to learn is from our history and our history shows us that don't only do one thing, have multiple things of areas of passions and hobbies, because you never know those hobbies might bring in income on the side. So I always think of you have to figure out what are things that are interest of you. And it doesn't always have to be like, well, this bring me money though. Don't think that way. Just enjoy life. You need to enjoy life. Life is so short have the best of it too. Like for me, one of the things I like to do on the side is gardening, or I like to now go horseback riding, or I will, I will write, I will like go wine tasting and then want to become a sommelier, get some passions that are outside of technology and learn those skills. Because I'll tell you one thing, I will definitely look forward to the day. And also it'd be really interesting in the future, when we can have some sort of robot that can taste wine and then tell us what kind of wine it is by its taste. We're not there yet. So some of these jobs are still safe, but that's the thing. We have to go out to your comfort zone. Don't just stop learning. I think that's the one of the things that we have to learn as humans is always be curious about the world, always keep learning. Because curiosity will drive change and it will improve your life too. And also you'll get to know more about the world. That's the exciting part about living is learning new things and trying new things. Otherwise, you're not really doing anything. And that kind of seems sad. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I try to do that as well. I'm a pool player. So I've been playing pool since I was 16. And so I'm on a league. My wife and I use it as date night. So Now, there's been a few IR incidents that popped up and screwed up date night, I'll be honest. But when I usually try and have team members cover me on Thursday, but we try to make it a time, we shoot pool, we disconnect from work and try to be just Pete and a couple again. And I think that always helps too, that have that time off, but also have management realize, I think, for instance, my company started to have it where there's no meeting Friday afternoons. People are complaining, there's too many meetings. We have meetings about meetings that get on top of meetings, and then we have other meetings and I'm having a hard time getting admin work done. I'm having a hard time updating status reports because I'm in so many meetings. And you literally can't do both at the same time. That's one thing. I've been in this career 24 years. One thing I learned is in the beginning, you used to think you could do multiple things. Like you can listen to a client call here while listening to a podcast, while writing up an email. No, nope. you find out is you can't. <laughs> Not at this level. It sucked. Maybe if you were talking about some personal thing about photos or something like that. But when it came to work... I couldn't do that. I couldn't switch the context. It was context switching constantly. 
and it wasn't very good. So I've learned to just be prescriptive and just say, all right, I'm on this call with this client at this time. I turn off everything else. I don't want to communicate, especially if I'm presenting because things are popping up and it's showing it's distracting at that same time. But And then in the periods of unknownness, having to relate to your staff, remember when we were first spinning out, there was a lot of unknowns. Nobody knew what the name of the company was going to be. Nobody knew what the website addresses was going to be. And you can see some people, it, it was exciting. They knew we were doing this exciting thing. We're spinning out from into a new company, but it was just massively stressful for a lot of people. And it's taken a while to to develop all the programs, the policies, try and get everything ordered, what's the pay bands, what all this kind of stuff is. And then to relay that and communicate that out. And it's interesting what different people are worried about. Some were very worried about their medical insurance covering certain bills when they spun up because this is the coverage that they have, which, you know, I, I know firsthand, you don't want to lose your medical insurance and then have to do COBRA and just what a pay. Oh, it's terrible. It, it, <laughs> If I could be president for a day, I would make it where you do not leave your lose your health care coverage because you change jobs or someone lays you off. I had friends that are rushing to CVS to get prescriptions because they just got laid off and their medical cuts off in 10 days. Mm. 10 days, their medical cuts off. So I just think it's horrible to tie that to it. It's very destructive. And I think it gives employers too much power. Not only can I have impact to your financial well-being, right? But at the same time, I can impact your whole family by cutting off their medical by letting you go. It's just, I don't think it's the right thing to I think do. It's, a, it's definitely an American thing. Because if you're in other places like in Europe, for example, your health insurance is not tied to your job. So this allows you to have more flexibility. It also allows you to have that balance of work and personal life because, hey, you're going to have coverage no matter what. So if you have a family member that has cancer, you don't have to worry about it. I think that's the thing that I feel like we could always get better in the U.S. is our policies. And that's one in particular, which is so sad because if you think about it, everyone is tied to a job. Every single person is tied to a job because they need those benefits. Yeah. Yeah, except the small, those business owners that really make it big and they have millions of dollars and, and they end up running for office and stuff like that. But for the most part, you're right. And I think having some of those stressful situations, when you see the news and recession, layoffs in these jobs and you go, golly, I, I can't afford to be laid off. What would happen with this? And it makes you reevaluate your life. And I think that's fine. Everybody should reevaluate the, the situation financially that you're in, but not stress and overly stress about things that you can't handle. Like the Marine Corps had this principle of locus of control. You had an internal locus of control or an external locus of control. So an external locus of control said that I'm not responsible for anything, whatever happens, it's God, it's whatever you want to say, but they really have no responsibility for the actions because it's this external force that does everything that's responsible for it. And then having an internal locus of control that says, all right, there's 10% of variability. I know that I could just get killed by an asteroid tomorrow type thing. But 90% of my life, I'm responsible for, I can change. And what that does is it drives motivation. I can change, I can adapt, I'm motivated, I feel good about myself because I can do that. And so I think they try to train you to do that because you go into combat situation, you don't have officers that are right there for you, you have to make a decision right off the bat. How do you empower your people to make decisions? And I think that is very enriching to a relationship. What I try to do too is that at the VP level, push down my authority to the people I know who are responsible for those different functions. It doesn't need to be me making those decisions. 
you you're empowered to make that up to half million or wh- whatever the criteria may be that you hand out for that situation. I think that is hugely empowering that you don't have to go to a central figure like you have no power, but I have to go to the boss all the time to get something approved. Why can't I delegate authority? You're responsible for this function. These are the parameters I need you to operate by. You make the decision on whether we do it or not. And that is a form of trust. You've entrusted some critical decision. And I think more managers should do that. And I think too much, there's some have the personality of accumulating power. Like I want to build my pyramid. The more people I have, the more authority I have, the better and stronger I am. And that's just not my mentality. Mine is more, how do I build a highly functional team? And how do I get everybody loving to come to work and have raving fans? And so for some of the people that work for me right now, work for me at different places, three or four of them, the second or third time they work for me. And so I think it's a really good sign when you're able to build those kind of relationships where you go to another company because of the leader that they hired. Like you, some yeah. strong leader goes in a company, like I'm calling him. Hey man, you got any jobs? I know a couple of people, my old chief operating officer, Jim Hansen, he's where at Redacted now. If he gives me a call, hey, I'd love to come work with him again. So there's those type of people that a company would hire. I can imagine companies hiring for that good leadership piece of that versus just the raw numbers that they might bring. Yep. That's definitely true. And then how do you do this in cybersecurity too? It's really hard. A lot of times to be heard and to be understood. I'd come home to my wife and I said, babe, it was really great. There was this Christmas scan that we did with InMap and we did this on this bro sensor. And she's just, I'm great. You sound excited. <laughs> that I'm sound really privileged. I have no idea what you're talking about. And you almost wish there was a psych, cybersecurity psychologist, like someone with a there lot is. of experience. There is a good one. His name is Ryan Louie. He was the first psychologist to get into cybersecurity and start giving talks and lectures on it. Oh. Yeah. I yeah. have to look him up. That's an interesting one because no one seems to understand you. It's an esoteric thing. <laughs> a regular therapist, they would be like, so you like your job and you, know, you go to at your job. What else would they say? <laughs> they would probably say you have probably a very stressful job. It seems like you work 70 hours a week. How's your drinking? You're drinking every single day. Okay. Maybe we need to talk. Yeah. I think that's the whole thing is, uh, yeah, our industry is very hard to describe to others, but they also know that it is literally a, we're trying to protect people and we're doing whatever we can. We work all odd hours. Everyone knows that we're on call 24 seven. At the end of the day, everyone's like, you're in security. Oh, wow. That's got to be really stressful. That's high risk. It's like, yeah, yeah, it is. And with that that's burden, as in, yeah. yeah. And that burden is, it could be, it's also a really dark industry too. And yeah. that I think is the thing that is hard for people to understand, or sometimes they already do. I've talked to people like, oh, I work in cybersecurity. And they're like, wow, that's got to be really dark. And you're like, oh yeah, it is. It's definitely dark. It's very dark. Have you heard this thing called InfoSec Twitter? It is really dark. Yeah, that's how it is. And that's why, like I said, it's so important is to be in touch with your feelings, your emotions, because I I remember Ryan Louie, him and I, we did a talk together in 2019 with a couple other individuals about mental health in this industry, how depression, anxiety is quite high but also burnout. And this is before the pandemic. So then when, but leaders weren't paying attention enough to it. And then the pandemic happened. And then we started noticing, hey, people don't want to work anymore now. They can't work anymore because they are mentally need some time. 
to gather everything. We went through, we went through a life changing event. I think that's the thing we tend to forget. Like we've lost people. The world changed completely and it, we're not out of it yet. And so yeah. that's my the dad, thing. My dad died of COVID in my yeah. hand. Yeah. That's the thing is that when we talk about burnout now, when we haven't been addressing the depression, the anxiety in this industry of working in this industry, we also need to come to terms with, we also have PTSD that's pretty bad in our industry as well. And PTSD has very similar symptoms that mimic burnout. And so that's the thing we have to acknowledge because we've gotten everyone to agree burnout is a problem in our industry. We're finally there, which I'm very happy about. Just just admitting that we have a mental health problem in this industry, but we're still needing to gather and understand that we are contributing to incredibly traumatic experiences for people. And we have to do better as leaders. We have to do better because those symptoms of PTSD are because of poor leadership most of the time. And that's the thing I think that we need to do better in our industry is to keep working on ourselves as leaders, but also feel uncomfortable about ourselves. We have to get uncomfortable to make changes with ourselves, keeping ourselves in check, having open conversations with our colleagues, seeing that therapist is a wonderful thing. These are all important things because if we don't keep ourselves in check, we are going to cause a trickle effect in our company. We're going to cause problems for our colleagues. We're going to cause problems to the people that report to us at the end of the day. And last thing we want is to create a traumatic event to someone else if we're dealing with the traumatic events ourselves. No, I completely agree. I think one thing too that adds to burnout that is, is you have to realize is that your boss is not your mentor. It would be great if your boss and your mentor were the same person. It would be phenomenal. But it doesn't have to be, right? And too many people look at their boss to go, you're not mentoring me. What's going on? And I don't think that's a right alignment. I think it's very important. There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. So I would have multiple people that you trust to be able to talk to and to be able to speak to and that be that mentor. But it's not necessarily a boss. And so too many people, I think, get confused for that because they're anticipating something from him that A, not anticipating that unless you've had some kind of frank discussion. And it's something that nine times out of 10, he's not really the right person to be your mentor in many ways. But what do you thought about mentorship? I think bosses can be mentors. I've had those before. And I absolutely love that because they're, they were probably the most incredible bosses I've ever had. I'll be honest, because they're going to be transparent with me. They're going to tell me behind scenes what's happening and how to address it by coming, hey, I'm stuck with this thing in another department. Could you help me on this? What advice do you have? Yeah. I, yeah, I still remember them to this day and I will never forget their advice. But I've also had, oh yeah. And if they called you up, you would want to go work for them again, right? Absolutely. I've also had bosses that were like coaches where they they provide a structure, but they also provided an open door where if you are interested in looking more into that, go for it. I'll back you up. That's cool. When someone is like, hey, I believe in you so much that you want to try something completely different 
that could help our team or our company, heck yeah. yeah. That means yeah. I'm allowing you to take a risk that could benefit us all. I think that's really cool when you have those kind of bosses. And it's rare. Well, Chloe, it's been great speaking to you today. It's been great talking about this in many ways. It's not a subject that comes up a lot. It does in my company in the executive ranks, but to be honest, we don't have a lot of solutions to things. We understand there's burnout because we're everybody looks at the executives and think that somehow we get off at five o'clock and, and everybody goes home and punches a clock and they don't realize our day is twice as long as theirs is. And it's intense. And no, there is no going to the golf course. And just in many ways, the movies make it seem like being executive is like you've made it type thing. And the work is just as hard as twice as long and more responsibilities. And what do you mean you don't have time? I'm sorry, the things do tomorrow. What do you want from me? So it's you're up till midnight, one, two in the morning sometimes. And that's just the nature of it. But I'm glad we were able to talk about it, find some other solutions and some strategies about that. Um, One thing, like you were saying, is just admit there is an issue. Uh, And then what can you do to better? What I got from this is how to better relate to people, to your direct reports, knowing that they're feeling that, knowing that the pandemic really caused a lot of change for a lot of people. And just being able to relate to that, I think was your key terms. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I hope to have you again. Thanks, Chloe. Sounds good. I look forward to seeing more that you, you have on your channel. And what was your channel and everything again? Oh, so it's with ITSP Magazine. It's a podcast called Secure Your Strategy. There you go. I saw your website. Really well done. I need to find out who you use for a web developer. It it looks nice. (laughs) And you have some great content. So, Chloe, it was nice talking to you. And you have a good day. And listening, stay secure. Thank you. And I'll see you on next episode. All right. Bye, everyone. Now, don't forget to hit like, subscribe, comment, share, and turn on those notifications so you don't miss an exciting episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure.